0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today
1: at IU Online. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. It was a warm and sunny afternoon in Washington, D.C., 1941, just months before the U.S. had joined World War II. 47-year-old Ohio Reverend Turner Hamilton Holt ascended the stairs
0: of the famous Capitol building. At his side was his cousin and U.S. Secretary of State Cordell Hull. Holt was transfixed by the
1: majestic fortress that had hosted many important men throughout history. But Holt wasn't there for an ordinary tour of the nation's historical landmark. Hull had something important to share with him. Something that required the man
0: of the cloth to take a solemn oath before entering the building. Holt swore to keep what he was about to see a secret from everyone, including his own family. The day's events had to stay between the two men.
1: Cordell Hull led his cousin past the usual tour stops to a set of stairways that led to a subterranean section beneath the nation's capital, a section very few people even knew about. Holt began to wonder whether they should turn back. He felt like he didn't belong
0: here. His instincts were right. The secretary of state led him through a labyrinth of twists and turns until they finally reached a giant closed door. The statesman entered cautiously and the pastor hesitantly
1: followed behind. When Hull flicked on the lights, the evangelist couldn't believe what lay before him. It was a chamber
0: filled with silver discs, metallic debris, and three small bodies preserved in jars evidence that extraterrestrial life had made contact with Earth.
1: Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a Parcast Original. I'm Bill. And I'm Tim. You can find all
0: episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Extraterrestrial for free on
1: Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely
0: unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered thousands, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook
1: and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on the 1941 UFO crash landing in Cape
0: Girardeau, Missouri, where multiple civilian witnesses glimpsed the remains of an alien spacecraft and its inhabitants before being bullied into silence
1: by the military. Last week, we discussed Reverend Huffman's experience being called to the crash site and performing last rites over the deceased extraterrestrials. One local reporter allegedly snapped an image of the scene and then passed the photograph off to the Reverend for safekeeping. But after a family dinner party, the alleged photograph went missing and was never seen again. This week, we'll explore what could have happened to the materials that were collected at
0: the Cape Girardeau site. Is it possible that Cordell Hull and Turner Holt found that same wreckage in the basement of the Capitol building? And could these materials have led to some of the biggest scientific breakthroughs of the 20th century? Around 1941, Reverend Turner Hamilton Holt, a 47-year-old ex-farmer turned minister, traveled to Washington, D.C. from his hometown of Greenwich, Ohio. He was a long married and respected member of the community who ventured to the country's capital from time to time to attend religious conferences. Holt had also been appointed
1: as a government advisor, although his exact title is unknown. Frequently, the Reverend would catch up with his 70-year-old cousin and trusted friend, U.S. Secretary of State Cordell Hull. Hull was a well-known and accomplished politician who had access to many government resources. He'd also played an instrumental part in getting his cousin the advisory role. And Hull was involved with important issues, like developing closer relations with Latin
0: America and advocating for trade liberalization. He was clearly a familiar
1: face inside the walls of the Capitol building. As Hull mentioned in his autobiography, he spent years working closely with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and thus was able to discuss any confidential issues candidly with him. In turn, Hull says he received frank answers to most secret matters. Aside from his access to information, Hull was well acclimated
0: with the layout of the Capitol building itself. This happened to include many of the
1: secret subterranean chambers that were off limits to the public. During one of Reverend Holt's frequent trips to Washington, he and Secretary Hull met at the State Department headquarters. It was on an afternoon sometime in mid-1941 that Hull asked his cousin to take a quick trip across town with him to the Capitol building. It was no secret that
0: the Capitol building had just received a large group of new security officers sent from the FBI, Secret Service, and the D.C. Metro Transit Police Force under Roosevelt's orders. Roosevelt was confident that the Capitol was now the most
1: protected building in the entire nation and with good reason. It's likely that members of Roosevelt's new security force were already familiar with Secretary of State Cordell Hull, which is possibly why they let him enter with his guest unquestioned. Little did they know that Holt was about to be exposed to one of the Capitol's darkest secrets. Cordell Hull led Reverend Holt down a series of stairs and into the
0: uninhabited basement. They ascended deeper into the sub-basement, which
1: many historians believe is even larger than the space above ground. Holt asked, where are we going? He was beginning to get nervous as the silent Hull refused to give him any warning about what would come next. When they reached the end of the long hallway, Holt got his answer. Secretary Hull opened
0: the door and flipped a light switch, revealing one of the most baffling scenes the Reverend
1: had ever witnessed. The room was dank, cold, and sterile, and on the floor in front of them were stacks of open crates filled with metallic debris, shards and shreds of an unknown silver material. There were some larger round objects partially covered
0: by a sheet and propped against the opposite wall, In moments, it became clear to Reverend Holt that he was looking at the crash debris from a damaged aircraft.
1: But the most peculiar artifacts in the room were the large glass jars filled with transparent gel. Reverend Holt assumed it could only be formaldehyde, as each jar seemed to be preserving what he described as a gray and extremely slender non-human creature. While Holt looked around, Hull continued to reiterate
0: just how top secret these findings were. Secretary Hull whispered,
1: these are creatures from another world. Holt knew the secretary was an honorable and knowledgeable man, and by the look on his face, this wasn't some sort of prank or hoax. Hull was dead serious. Once the flabbergasted Holt was able to gain his bearings, Cordell Hull encouraged him to get closer and even handle the evidence. The odd Holt approached the silver disc and grabbed the edge. He effortlessly lifted it and was absolutely shocked at just how light the otherworldly material was. Reverend Holt's description of the found objects is nearly identical to the craft that Reverend Huffman saw on the night of the crash in Cape Girardo. Since Holt's account takes place only a few months later, and the two men were complete strangers, it seems extremely unlikely that Reverend Huffman told Holt his story, especially since Huffman was allegedly sworn to secrecy, terrified to tell anyone outside his own family about the UFO crash. After lifting the saucer, Holt took a closer look at the contents of
0: the glass jars. He simply couldn't believe his eyes. The metallic disc and debris was one thing, but the small bodies encapsulated in
1: front of him appeared to be otherworldly specimens. The creatures were about four feet in height in a fetal position inside the jars. They were gray-skinned, slender in shape with extremely long arms, but their most striking feature was their giant bulbous heads.
0: Even after they left the subterranean basement, Reverend Holt and Cordell Hull spent plenty of time obsessing over these massive craniums. They continued to discuss
1: the disturbing attribute for years afterward. The two sincerely speculated about what the head size implied about the creature's intelligence. If these beings were able to travel from planet to planet, then what else were they capable of? Perhaps Hull and Holt were also genuinely disturbed that
0: these alien bodies were kept in one of the most important buildings in the United States. Would these creatures return and one day threaten the nation's capital if they knew their kind was being stored and experimented on nearby? During a time of war, could an invading nation enter the building and confiscate
1: the precious findings? Keep in mind, the United States Pentagon didn't officially open its doors until 1943. So it's possible that the Capitol building was the most suitable place to store the evidence for further research during that time period. And the fact that the bodies were preserved in formaldehyde instead of dried
0: out or mummified, stuffed, or mounted, meant that they were most likely being shelved for some sort of future use. But the question is,
1: why? What was the government hoping to learn from these strange little creatures? Hull allegedly told Reverend Holt that afternoon, we can't tell the American people about this, as it would probably start a panic. Had the Secretary of State already been briefed on the topic? Was this something
0: he had dealt with before or discussed in meetings? It seems as though the
1: Secretary already understood the impact this information could have then again, it's possible that Cordell Hull was never formally briefed on the stored alien materials, but only stumbled upon them by accident. Perhaps he was even shown the materials in the same secretive manner as he shared them with the Reverend. Unfortunately, Secretary Hull never told Turner Holt where the
0: evidence came from or how the government came into possession of it. But one thing is for sure. The timing seems to line up well with the Cape Girardeau
1: crash in 1941. And what Cordell Hull certainly didn't know was that these materials may have gone on to aid in the research and development of one of the most dangerous weapons ever created by man. Coming up. One scientist from Operation
0: Paperclip admits that the Cape Girardeau evidence was critical to the American atomic weapons program.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. And now, back to the story.
0: In mid-1941, 47-year-old Reverend Turner Holtz accompanied Secretary of State Cordell Hull to the Capitol building where he
1: discovered extraterrestrial materials that had been recovered from a U.S. crash site. Cordell Hull claimed to not know where the evidence had come from or what would happen to it next. But one Nazi scientist may have had the answers. In the 1940s, America's highly classified nuclear weapons program,
0: the Manhattan Project, was beginning to take shape and eventually proved to be a success. The top secret operation produced an atomic bomb that would make
1: history and aid in ending the war five years later. When World War II was in its final stages, American and allied forces scoured occupied Germany to collect as much military, technological, and scientific research as possible. War-related materials and documents were confiscated, and some of the country's most brilliant minds were seized and interrogated. Roughly 1,600 German scientists were brought to the US and forced to aid
0: in the development of new weapons and technologies. This covert affair was known
1: as Operation Paperclip. 35-year-old Otto Krauss was one of those scientists. As a nuclear physicist, Krauss was put to use in a variety of nuclear research sites on American soil. According to Paul Blake Smith's book, MO41, The Bombshell Before Roswell, Krauss hinted that the American scientific community was able to finish the operation thanks to very advanced technology culled from a crashed disk that was hauled from a landing site in Missouri in 1941. Krauss went on to say that the evidence gathered for the research
0: was considered more top secret than the atom bomb itself. He made it clear that the hardware was not from this world but instead
1: of an extraterrestrial nature. Other contemporary researchers uncovered that Krauss claimed to be involved in creating a highly classified propulsion device. It was allegedly designed with aerodynamic alien technology that was also said to be collected from the crash in Missouri in 1941. Which leads us to one American engineer and inventor, Dr.
0: Vannevar Bush, who was appointed president of the National Defense Research Committee under Roosevelt in 1940. Dr. Bush was dedicated to FDR, and the two had a close relationship. He was also known to be the president's
1: trusted physician. In fact, the 50-year-old Dr. Bush reportedly joined FDR on the morning of Wednesday, April 16th, 1941, for a top-secret discussion in the Oval Office. The timing of this meeting lines up perfectly with the Cape Girardeau crash, which happened on April 12, 1941. FDR had a potential new
0: weapon that had landed right in his lap, and Dr. Vannevar Bush would be one of the first people invited to play with Roosevelt's new toy. But one
1: man stood between Bush and the evidence from the crash. General George Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, was possibly the highest ranking person at the scene in Cape Girardeau. This means he's also likely to have overseen
0: the recovery and delivery of the materials to the Missouri Institute of Aeronautics that
1: fateful night. Hypothetically, he would also have been the most qualified candidate to deliver a report on the crash and recovery firsthand to President Roosevelt. General Marshall probably briefed the president sometime between the Monday after the wreck and Dr. Bush's meeting with Roosevelt on Wednesday. So General Marshall may have felt somewhat entitled to the materials he recovered,
0: maybe even responsible for them. While Bush was eager to get his hands on the debris for his research, Marshall possibly felt that the crash was a matter of
1: national defense. As a result, George Marshall did his best to keep the materials locked away from Dr. Bush or anyone else who had plans to tinker with them. Perhaps this is why the materials were temporarily kept in the basement of the Capitol building. However, if some individuals are to be believed, the craft eventually made its way onto the military training grounds of North and South Carolina. One source named Guy Simone
0: claims he was part of a massive military training program in the summer of 1941 in both states. Guy apparently participated in an exercise that
1: taught soldiers how to recover and conceal a crashed UFO. Guy claimed that the materials used in the exercise were unlike anything he had seen before, including a cracked open spaceship, through which he could clearly see a cockpit with a switchboard and tiny seats. Inside were some strange hieroglyphic markings that he could not understand. In fact, Guy Simone's story was nearly identical to Reverend William
0: Huffman's account of the crashed saucer even down to the gaping hole that allowed him to peek inside. However, with no way to verify either story,
1: we can't be sure what's truth and what's fiction. One thing that is known for certain is that in October of 1941, FDR finally gave Bush the go-ahead to develop the atomic bomb. He was ordered to keep this project a secret. Some recovered memorandums indicate that
0: Dr. Vannevar Bush may have assembled a small team to specifically focus on the crashed technologies in Cape Girardeau. This effort is suspected to have gone
1: on well into the 1950s, into President Truman's term. Some of this theory seems to be backed up by FDR's Oval Office memorandums. One such missive shows that Roosevelt ordered top American scientists, including Professor Einstein, to infuse their atomic research with the technology recovered from the nuclear power plant along with the celestial items. Perhaps the same ones from the crash at Cape Girardeau? Some of these details are also hinted at in a set of documents known as Twining
0: Reports, a series of classified letters that discussed some elusive and foreign materials that had been recently discovered outside of Roswell in 1947.
1: The leaked documents were written up by key Air Force personnel under the orders of General Nathan F. Twining. He was the head of the AMC, or the Air Materiel Command, as well as the Foreign Technology Division based out of Ohio's Wright Field. Twining's reports made references
0: to a 1941 UFO crash. In addition, he discussed
1: foreign materials being used for nuclear weapons research at a base in New Mexico. Presumably, Twining was talking about the famous research facility known as Los Alamos, where the Manhattan Project conducted a large amount of its research and development. Most shockingly, the paper states, Even
0: the recovery case of 1941 did not create a unified intelligence effort to exploit possible technology gains with the exception of the Manhattan Project. We now have an opportunity to extend our technology beyond
1: the threshold that we have achieved. Could this be the smoking gun? As far as ufologists are concerned, the report is definitely referring to the Cape Girardeau crash. One line in the document has a slight redaction that makes
0: the sentence even more suspicious, stating, this conclusion was reached as a result of comparisons of artifacts redacted discovery
1: in 1941. The redacted block holds just enough space to type the words from the Missouri, which would make the sentence read, This conclusion was reached as a result of comparisons of artifacts from the Missouri discovery in 1941. But that blank space could
0: also fit any number of other words or phrases. It's difficult to categorize this as concrete evidence for the Cape Girardeau crash when key information is
1: missing. But if the materials found at Cape Girardeau were in fact nothing but a small plane crash, Why did the paper trail and secret studies continue nearly a decade later? If there were no valuable otherworldly
0: materials that aided in the war effort, then what was General Twining referring to in his reports? Could it be that there was another top secret discovery made in 1941 that had nothing to do with extraterrestrial beings or a crash
1: landing? We have to return to the night of the crash in order to analyze its legitimacy. There are quite a few accounts recorded from the night of the
0: crash, the most influential being Reverend William Huffman's. His wife, Floy, reportedly recounted the story to her granddaughter, Charlotte Mann, in 1984
1: while on her deathbed. In turn, Charlotte shared the story shortly thereafter. Her testimony was the first time that the wider world learned anything of the Cape Girardeau crash. Other accounts surfaced after Charlotte went public,
0: but there was only one piece of civilian evidence that seemed to exist, Garland
1: Froney Fronebarger's picture. The snapshot allegedly showed two men in matching hats propping up a four-foot alien with extremely long arms. The proof was last seen in the hands of Walter Fisk, the self-proclaimed former U.S. advisor and psychologist-turned-insurance salesman. As we discussed last episode, Fisk asked to
0: borrow the photograph after the Reverend's son, Guy Hoffman, showed him the image at a dinner
1: party. It was never seen again, although Fisk maintained that he returned the photo to Huffman. In 1990, one UFO investigator named Ryan
0: Wood reportedly found the elderly Fisk in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He claimed to have visited Fisk's attractive middle-class home, which was located only a few miles from Kirtland Air Force Base, Sandia National Laboratories, and the Manzano Weapons
1: Storage Area. The latter was rumored to have been, at one time, the home of closely guarded nuclear weapons, as well as other heavily monitored classified materials, maybe even extraterrestrial spacecraft. According to Wood, when he was
0: welcomed into Fisk's home, he was fascinated that the man had endless books on UFOs. During their conversation, Fisk also admitted to having taken a photo of an unidentified flying object from the window of a
1: well-known government building in D.C. The cagey Fisk refused to go into more detail on the topic. So was it a mere coincidence that he now happened to live down the street from a few of the most top secret government facilities in the country? Is it possible that Fisk was actually some sort of operative or expert? Or perhaps he was just some UFO fanatic who was dying to get close to the truth. Either way, Ryan Wood seemed to only care about one answer. What happened to the Huffman's alien photo? While Walter Fisk did seem to remember Charlotte Mann's mother, even casually referring to her as Red, he claimed to not remember ever taking or even seeing the photograph. After hitting a dead end
0: with the elderly Fisk, Ryan Wood left with no new or useful
1: information. Shortly before Walter Fisk's death, Former Sykeston resident and researcher Linda L. Wallace reportedly contacted him, hoping for a different story. The irritated old Fisk was less than forthright, but did admit to Linda that he'd seen the priceless alien photograph. He then reverted back to his original story, that he'd already given the photo back to Guy Huffman. But Fisk also admitted to Linda
0: that he'd shown the image to a friend who was a marine biologist back in the day,
1: hoping to get a better idea of what the creature was. The story then morphed into Walter having only told his friend about the image instead of showing it to her. Fisk's narrative was shifty, but he always managed to maintain the same closing statement. He gave the photo back to the Huffman family. Linda was the last person known to interview Fisk before he died. When
0: she spoke to his wife, she learned that the woman had always been suspicious of her husband, especially after they moved near an L.A. Army base, where Walter seemed to spend
1: a questionable amount of time. Mrs. Fisk reportedly told Linda that she was certain her husband had been an Army spy or an undercover operative who was assisting with top secret operations. But since his death, there has been no evidence of any of that being true. The Huffman's alien photo never resurfaced. Was the image lost,
0: handed over by Fisk to another government employee to archive and keep hidden? Or is it possible that the Cape Girardeau crash never happened at all and the people of the small Missouri town were all participants
1: in a massive hoax? Coming up, we'll take a closer look at Cordell Hull and Turner Holt's story, and analyze the legitimacy of the Huffman's prized alien photograph. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the A supposed UFO in Cape Girardeau, Missouri in 1941 led to the gathering and classifying of materials thought to be the remnants of an alien spacecraft. Very similar, if not identical, evidence was spotted by 70-year-old Secretary of State Cordell Hull and his 47-year-old cousin, Reverend Turner Holt, in the Capitol building that same year. The materials
0: were most likely stored there under the orders of 60-year-old General George Marshall, the U.S. Army Chief of Staff, who allegedly went on to stage similar UFO recovery operations with his men. 50-year-old Dr. Vannevar Bush inevitably pried the materials from the General's hands in order to further progress on atomic
1: weaponry development. But aside from the leaked twining memorandums, which contained a brief but vaguely possible mention of Cape Girardeau in 1941, there is little to no concrete evidence that three alien bodies and a downed spacecraft were recovered that April night. Which leads to questions about the legitimacy of Froney's alien photo. Since Charlotte was about 11 years old when the photo went missing, it's unlikely that her recollection of the image is completely accurate. Charlotte was also never able to identify the two men who appeared in the photo. It's possible that one was Narvel B. Short, the county coroner for Cape Girardeau.
0: Narvel was used to handling dead bodies as part of his daily routine and therefore seems like one of the most likely candidates to get near the corpse before the
1: military arrived on the scene. There were also plenty of police officers, firemen, and civilians on the scene of the crash that night. But Charlotte stated that the two men were not in uniform, so they were unlikely to be cops or firemen unless they were off-duty. If those two men were aware of their photograph being taken by
0: Garland Froney Fronebarger that evening, then wouldn't they have come looking for the
1: image later on? Or were they also scared into silence on the night of the crash? Perhaps they assumed that Froney's film was collected along with any other evidence gathered that night, which begs another question. The
0: afternoon Froney appeared on Reverend Huffman's doorstep, he was anxious and nervous, seemingly dodging someone was someone from the government onto him froni only passed on a print to the reverend that day if there were any other copies of the photograph where did they go and what happened
1: to the original role of film and the negatives neither linda wallace nor any of the other researchers managed to make contact with garland fronabarger's family if a negative existed, it was nowhere to be found. Charlotte claimed Froney only gave her father the print, so if he was genuinely worried about having the evidence in his possession, why not hand over the negative as well? One of the most difficult things about Charlotte's story is that the account is not her own. Since the story was passed down from her grandfather, William Huffman, to her grandmother, Floy Huffman, and then to Charlotte nearly 50 years later, it's difficult to say that details hadn't been distorted. One Virginia investigator named James Westwood later put Charlotte's account under a
0: microscope. When Westwood arrived in Cape Girardeau in 1998,
1: he began reviewing local records and seeking out corroborating sources. Westwood had an impossible time finding anyone who had even heard rumors about the UFO landing. After searching county archives, the closest report Westwood could find was a student airplane crash roughly 25 miles away in Morley, Missouri. But that incident was reported in May of 1941, a month after the supposed Cape Girardeau UFO crash. And what about the other witnesses that came forward over the years and made their dying confessions to their next of kin? Walter Reynolds was one of the firemen who responded to the crash and was then reprimanded for grabbing a piece of shrapnel. His story
0: lives on through his grandson, Philip Reynolds. Philip came forward in 2012 to tell his grandfather's story to paranormal investigator Stan Hernandez,
1: but Hernandez found a few problems with Philip's account. There seemed to be no hard evidence that Walter Reynolds was ever a firefighter for the Cape Girardeau Fire Department, nor was he even listed in the Cape Girardeau directory from the early 1940s. It's possible that his grandson Philip was just hopping on
0: the bandwagon looking for some kind of attention, especially since his account came out after Charlotte Mann's and his revelation mirrors hers almost
1: exactly. Philip, of course, had no hard proof that his grandfather was present for the crash in Missouri. But there was one suspicious article that was uncovered through paranormal investigator Stan Hernandez's research. Hernandez discovered two write-ups in the Southeast Missourian dated just
0: days after the crash. According to the paper, a man named Quentin Williams had
1: resigned from the fire department immediately following the weekend of the crash. So perhaps Reynolds wasn't the only person on the fire department who experienced something traumatic that warm April night. Perhaps Williams saw the UFO crash and subsequently determined he couldn't handle the pressure. On the other
0: hand, people leave jobs all the time for any number of reasons. And there's no reason to think that Williams was even present at the crash site, let alone that this was his reason for
1: quitting. One other account to consider is that of Reverend Turner Holt. What did he really see at the Capitol building, and does it support the evidence of the Cape Girardeau crash? Holt made good on his promise to Cordell Hull
0: and kept quiet about what he experienced in the Capitol building. It wasn't until nearly 20 years later, in 1960, that the 66-year-old finally told
1: his daughters, Lucille and Aline, what he had seen in that basement. The two sisters were terrified to come forward with their father's story, but eventually did in the 1990s. They braced themselves for the controversy they were certain they'd cause. But the women had no hard proof that the tale had actually taken place. When Linda Wallace, former Sykeston
0: resident and researcher, reportedly met with Holt's now elderly daughters, Lucille and Aline, in 2008, she couldn't detect any fraud or deception on their part. She felt their accounts were plausible and unwavering, despite
1: their lack of proof. Wallace found that it had never dawned on the sisters to get any official record of their father's account. She concluded that their lack of proof was a sign of their naivete, not evidence that they were perpetuating a hoax. But as other investigators dug into Holt's story, some questionable
0: information started to come to light. First off, Cordell Hull's desk diary never showed any visits from Turner Holt between the years of 1938 and
1: 1942. It's possible that the meeting was so secret that Cordell Hull never even listed it in his professional log. However, another confusing
0: element is that Lucille Holt wasn't entirely certain when her grandfather told her this story. She believed it was sometime before World War II when Lucille
1: was in her late teens or early 20s. The timeline of Holt's visit became fuzzy as investigators questioned the sisters further. Aline and Lucille both began to feel as though their grandfather's trip to the Capitol building may have been before 1941, perhaps even as early as 1939, well before the Cape Girardeau crash. And while
0: that information doesn't explain what Cordell Hull and Turner Holt saw in the storage space, it would mean that the allegedly extraterrestrial artifacts were recovered from an
1: entirely different site. One of the sisters also mentioned that her father had described not three but four alien creatures preserved in jars in the Capitol basement. If that were true and her memory was correct, then where could the fourth body have come from? Since Reverend Huffman had described there
0: specifically being three bodies recovered that April night, perhaps all of the evidence in the Capitol was from an entirely different crash, or perhaps they weren't
1: aliens at all. And is it realistic to think that the massive disk recovered at the site could have been discreetly hauled into the Capitol building? It was a holiday weekend and most of the building was devoid of civilians and lower level workers. It's not impossible to think that the materials were brought in on a truck and carted through the tunnels of the subterranean space. One woman who worked for the Capitol building's architecture firm confirmed that this underground facility
0: does, in fact, exist. The woman, who described herself as the curator, said that there was a basement back in the 30s and 40s. Although it changed significantly over time, it was at one point divided into rooms that were used for
1: storage. All in all, It seems hard to believe that all of these accounts came from people who were confused, liars, or attention-seekers. The people that were connected to the Cape Girarde crash were reverends, firemen, police officers, and respected local reporters. But since all of these accounts were passed
0: down over generations, the investigation became a game of telephone with no
1: way of knowing what the original story was, much less if it was even true. The difficulty lies, then, in finding some sort of concrete evidence to support the claims. Since the military allegedly swooped in on the scene that night to collect anything that could have supported their testimonies, many of these people were left only with their memories and their stories. The one piece of evidence that may have existed, Froni's photograph, is now lost forever
0: an unfortunate inconvenience that forces us to question whether it was ever
1: even real. With all of this in mind, we give the Cape Girardeau crash a four out of 10 on our believability scale. Perhaps Frony's photo will one day resurface to confirm the accounts of Reverend William Huffman and the others. But for now, without a single piece of concrete evidence, we simply can't accept this story at face value. However, the Cape Girardeau crash remains an intriguing tale of World War II America.
0: A small-town secret may have been the key to developing the atomic bomb and
1: defeating Japan. And in turn, the modern descendants of the crash witnesses inherited a legacy of cosmic proportions.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Extraterrestrial. For more information on the Cape Girardeau crash of 1941, among the many sources we used, we found MO-41, the bombshell before Roswell, by Paul Blake Smith, and the Cape Girardeau 1941 UFO
1: incident by George Dudding to be very helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Extraterrestrial and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is
0: making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Extraterrestrial for
1: free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Extraterrestrial on Spotify, just open the app and type Extraterrestrial in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. This episode of Extraterrestrial was written by Lori Gottlieb and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson.